Father God, we pray that you bless this time. Please help me to move in spirit and in truth, that it be less of me and more of you. Help us to walk in your principles, trust your way. Apply what you teach us, Lord, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. Da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, very good, very good. I'm loving it. I was a little weak, but you didn't sound convincing. Uh, Gillette, the best man can get. Very good. You should be on their commercial, Myron. That was great. A man can get the best a man can get. Hallmark, when you care enough. <laughs> KFC, finger, looking good. Very good. Burger King, have it. Easy stuff. Easy peasy. All right, Lay's chips. Bet you can't eat just one. Right. This is easy. Uh, so I need a kid to do this. M&M's. Melts. <laughs> okay. You're like, I'm a kid at heart. Uh, Craig, Walmart. Save. Do you know their slogan? Okay. Well, it's actually, I, got, I had, <laughs> I have save money, live better. Very good. Save money, live better. Uh, Coke. <laughs> Jody's like, same difference. Coca-Cola, it's the real thing. That's a little bit old, I think. The real thing. All right, give me a break. Give me a break. I also keep to that Kit Kat bar. All right. Subway, eat, eat fresh. Uh, Frosted Flakes, they're great. Yes, they're great. This one's terrible. I think this one's absolutely terrible. Maybe she's born with it. <laughs> Maybe, what are they saying there? Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Okay. Energizer batteries, it keeps going and going and going. Verizon, can you hear me now? Good. Dunkin' Donuts, America runs on Dunkin'. All right, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You guys are good. Yeah. I go on. Uh, bounty paper towels, the quicker picker upper. Yeah, amazing. It's like it's in your brain, right? It's in your brain. Now that that's fun, and I thought I wanted to have a little fun with that. And a lot more. I just uh, picked it, picked a handful. But but I think what what I want what I want us to realize, at least at some level, and to point out is that in our culture, we're programmed as consumers. I mean, we are programmed as consumers from from the time that we could you know just process it. And the danger in this. Um, in our culture, and, and we do live in, in this materialistic culture, a consumer-minded culture. One of the dangers, there's many, we, we could talk all about materialism and the dangers of consumerism, but one of the dangers is that we, we, we begin to respond as a consumer in almost every area of life. And, and we respond in, in, as a consumer in areas of life that were never intended to be treated as commodities to be consumed. And one area I think we've done that is the church. That we treat it like it's a commodity 
we treat it like it's a product to be consumed. A couple weeks ago, we entered into a series on our church values here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel, uh, reflecting on the guiding principles of great importance to us as a church. Um, and we talked about really what, it's, we, what we value most drives what we actually do. What we value most drives what we actually do. Um, we considered that as a church, we must be truly Christ-centered, right? We took two weeks on that. The idea that Jesus has to be my Savior, and he also has to be my Lord to be Christ-centered. And that we need to do that corporately. What's that look like corporately? Uh, we reflected on the importance of being a scripturally-based church or a biblically-based church, that, that we honor the authority and sufficiency of the Bible literally as God's word. Literally is God's word, and that, that it is that is his tool of revelation and his tool of refinement in our lives. This week, we're going to focus on, on our value of functioning in the context of community. And th this is pretty dear to my heart, and I think this is something that we just miss a lot in our culture. Um, and we're going to contrast that with the temptation to see the church as a commodity. And uh, when I refer to the church as a community, uh, I'm not just talking about the, kind of the generic sense of a gathering of people in a common area or with a common background. So if you look up a couple definitions of community, you'll find that. But I'm talking about a diverse collection of people that, that, have, that share a common spiritual heritage in Jesus and then that collection of people who share that heritage intentionally engage in a deep sharing of life together. Intentionally engage in a deep sharing of life together. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 2. Just going to read a few verses that are maybe well known to many. Maybe they're new to some, and that's, that's fine. The context here in Acts 2 is right on the tails of the experience of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit of God was poured out on the church and indwelled believers. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was at work, but it was often kind of on somebody and then, then out. It was more of an outside work. And here, as Joel promised, now there's a, a new era the era of the church in which the Spirit is poured out and actually indwells believers. And Jesus pro promised this counselor, this comforter, this one who would come alongside to help and empower us. So this is just on the heels of the Spirit being infused in the church. And then um, we get a little synopsis of what the church then did, what, what it looked like. What, is this, what did this Spirit-filled church devote themselves to? We read this also a couple weeks ago when we talked about the importance of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, and we'll just read to the end of the chapter. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet 
together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This is the spirit-filled church. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is what they engaged in together. Uh, community is actually expressed here as one of the essential aspects that this early church devoted themselves to. Where do we see that? What, what, is, the, what is the terminology here that we would, we would get that from? They devoted themselves to what? There's a key word in here. Okay, that would be part of it. The fellowship. There, there's this phrase here that's interesting, that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Does anyone know what that word is in the Greek? It's, a, it's koinonia. They devoted themselves to koinonia. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Does anyone know what that word actually means? Anyone? Any? You don't even necessarily have to be a Greek scholar. I mean, that's, that's one of those koinonia. It actually means sharing. It, it denotes generosity. It, Paul actually uses the same word when he's making a collection uh, for the, uh, uh, within the Gentile churches. He calls that collection a koinonia. A, a shared generosity. So here we have this idea of a shared generosity, a, a kind of a joint participation in, in sharing something generously, but he's referring to a shared life in the church, koinonia. It, it included, but, but went well beyond kind of what we experience weekly, that, that we'd have a time of worship together a time of teaching, they certainly engaged in that. They seemed to engage in that. We know that a rhythm uh, became, uh, came to where they were doing that the first day of the week, the day of, that Jesus was resurrected, but it was far beyond that as we see here. They, they had um, such a commonality that they literally shared, held all things in common, even their possessions. So if someone had a need, I would be willing to sell something to meet their need. Because I didn't just consider what I had as what? Mine. I, I considered it something to be shared. Koinonia. It was a ministry of great hospitality. It talks about them meeting in each other's homes. and So you, you get some of the formal sense of what we would, what we would uh, understand as our, our Christian practices, the, the teaching and the applying themselves to the uh, apostles' teaching. But you also just get this, this beautiful shared life as they have this ministry of hospitality, eating and sharing, sharing life together in their homes. When's the last time you had someone in your home for something like that other than your family? They, um, they built relationships together. They saw God powerfully moving among them. It was very invitational, apparently. It, was very, it, it, it welcomed and included newcomers. That was like a normal practice of what was happening, that new people were added and they included in their fellowship. Their general attitude was one of gladness, of praise, of sincerity. So is this the experience of the church today? When you look at this little synopsis of what they devoted themselves to and what this fellowship looked like, this, this sharing of life looked like, this community, is it what the church is experiencing today? 
Sometimes so. I, I, I've had the ple pleasure of experiencing a lot of these things, even with you. But sometimes not. And sometimes you have a church where some people are experiencing it and some people are not. The Western church in particular, I think, has made it abundantly easy to view church not primarily in the way we see here, kind of to share life deeply in Christ, but as a commodity to consume. And, the, and I think part of the reason of that is that we've bought into that in the culture, and then we've presented the church that way. We present the church as a commodity. Church is often treated as a business. This has been going on for decades. I, I remember as a teenager going to uh, seminars about church planting, and it was, all, it was all business jargon, strategies and targets and, and targeting certain people and, you know, and, and how you present this and how you present your advertising. And, and I'm not, I want to be careful. I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm like, wait a minute. Is the church a business? Is it something to be sold? Something to be consumed? We, we, we often look at other local churches, instead of being kind of a, a broader extension of a greater family, as competitors. <laughs> They're competitors for people. They're competitors to fill the seats. They're competitors for, you know, for the, the, the giving and the offerings, whatever. Is that the way it's meant to be? So it really shouldn't surprise us that we've created a culture of, of church consumers where, where we shop around for churches kind of like we would shop around for a favorite restaurant. Seems perfectly normal. This church has the best music. Oh, their, their worship team is great. They, they, sing, they sing the good songs. Uh, th this, church, this church has the, the most modern facility and the most comfy chairs. I know no one ever says that about Arkin Hill Ridge Chapel. <laughs> this church, that church has a great children's program. Boy, that church has an engaging preacher. Again, I'm not saying all these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. But if we're using them as marketing tools, if we're using them as in ways to kind of compare and shop for the best church, I think something's gone askew. Something's wrong. It's interesting, uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, and, and I've mentioned this book uh, recently. It's an old book, great book, but it's the context you have to remember here is a demon, is a senior demon writing his counsel to a subordinate demon. Just a little paragraph here. He says, my dear Wormwood, so apparently this demon is very affectionate in his opening of his letters. My dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he, he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you're all about? Why have I no report of the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it's due to indifference, it's a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, then the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster 
or connoisseur of churches. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4. You can turn there if you'd like, Matthew chapter 4. Or you can just listen. This is, again, pretty well-known experience here of Jesus. It says, then, I'll mention the context after I read it. Then, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So it's an interesting scenario. The Spirit is leading him into this time of testing. And the devil is a tool of the testing. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him. Away from me Satan. For it is written. Worship the Lord your God. And serve him only. Then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended him. Context of that story. Comes right off the heels of Jesus' baptism. And his baptism is kind of the the point that begins this mission that he's going to go on. Because it's the moment that God pronounces, this is my, what? My son. This is my son. And of whom he is well pleased. And and now he's about to go out on this mission that's tied into his identity. I think there's something to be learned there that our mission is tied to our identity. And that mission will lead to the cross, that he will give his life as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins, to pay the penalty for that sin, that all who would put their faith in him can be reconciled to God. Have you put your faith in Jesus? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that, that is, that's what happens just before this. This is my son. He's about to go on this mission that is tightly wrapped up into his identity, but before there's a time of testing. This is my son of whom I'm well pleased. And then Satan says over and over and over again, he says what? If you are the son of God, right? There's a lot that can be taught on that passage. I understand that, and I don't want to do it in injustice. But what was the essence of what's going on there? What was Satan trying to accomplish, you think? Hmm? Doubt? Okay. 
Any other thoughts? I'm sorry? Sin? Okay. To tempt his flesh? Okay, tap into his pride. Okay, so he's tapping into his identity, so that's interesting. And then using it how? Okay. Yeah, prove it. What's the goal? What's the goal? Logan, are you whispering to yourself or are you? Okay. Yeah, okay. Kind of a break of father and son. And then what? Stop the ministry, right? He wants to derail it. I'm going to take this train off the tracks. Hmm. Those are all good, good answers. You know, Satan suggests that Jesus should not be hungry. Feed yourself. You've got the power to do it. Take matters into your own hands. He, he also suggests that he should force God's hand. And, and what he should do as he forces God's hand is he can do what he can do and, and show himself through kind of a, a spectacle. Jump off. The angels will catch you. And then he suggests that, that, that Jesus should seize the opportunity for power. If you're the son of God, isn't it rightfully yours? But all you have to do is bend your knee to me. Jesus knows that all of these are in stark contrast to the kingdom of God, which calls for self-denial, which calls for a reliance on God's word, which calls for a humble trusting of God, often in the face of suffering which calls for the relinquishing of my rights and power and being willing, as Jesus would later say, to be a servant to all. But in essence, Satan is saying, if you're the son of God, there's an easier way. Forget the way of the father. I've got a shortcut for you. There's really no need to be humble. There's really no need for patience. There's really no need for submission or self-denial. There's no need for this servanthood. There's no need for suffering. There's no need to be faithful to the long, hard road. Just leapfrog it. Satisfy yourself. Take hold of what is rightfully yours. But of course, to do that, you have to worship me. Satan is always trying to derail the mission. He's always trying to twist the identity and derail the mission. Wouldn't he love to derail the purpose and the mission of the church? Wouldn't he love to have us forget our identity as God's children? That we are a family, the family of God? For us to neglect the way of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit and instead treat the church like a business? Wouldn't he love for us to selfishly think of it as a commodity to be consumed? 
primarily about what I can get out of it, what I can take out of it, how it fits my needs, my tastes, my preferences. Rather than remember it is his precious bride whom he loves and has laid his life down for. The bride of Christ, whom if I call myself a Christian, to whom I belong and I'm called to serve, Wouldn't he love to tempt us to leapfrog the the long, hard road of togetherness, of sacrifice, of faithfulness? Wouldn't he love, listen to me, wouldn't he love for us to forget that what the gospel offers is far superior to what the world offers? Wouldn't he love for us to forget that? Wouldn't he love for us to forget that the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel is far more powerful than any worldly strategy we could come up with? To be a true Christian community, we need a major paradigm shift. Away from the extremes of individualism and consumerism, to the sacrificial call of sharing life together. Allow me to point out three contrasts quickly here to seeing church as a commodity versus a community. For one, a commodity allows for detachment, but a community involves belonging. A commodity allows me to be detached. So I might really like Wegmans. How many of you like Wegmans, right? I might really like Wegmans. But, but I don't feel like I belong to Wegmans, right? I, I, I don't even feel like I particularly need it unless I go, which I don't go food shopping. It's just an illustration. Cheryl does thank you, thank you Cheryl and the Lord. Um, I, I don't even feel like I particularly need it outside of going food shopping once a week. And it may not even be that important to me who's there and who's not there. It probably should be. But I'm just there for what? The food. A lot of people treat church that way. I'm going to slide in. I'm going to get my spiritual food. And I'm going to slide out. And it really doesn't matter who else is there. I can remain detached. Because I'm really just a consumer of goods. But the church isn't meant to be viewed as your weekly visit to the food store. The Bible never allows me to view myself as detached from the larger community. The reality is, whether you recognize it or not, if you have bowed your knee to Christ, if you have called on him as your savior from your sins and turned from your way unto his way, you're included. You might deny that including. Your brothers and sisters might drive you crazy sometimes, right? Family always do that but you're included, you're in. You're in the family. You may try and detach yourself, but you're in the family. But First uh, Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen people. We like to individualize it. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. John Wesley once said, there's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. It's interesting. Instead, every Christian is to see themselves as belonging to the greater Christian community. And then that works, the reality of that works out in the local church. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says, Just as each of you has one body with many members, arms, legs, eyes, ears, all these members of the body, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member what? Belongs to all the others. So as a church, are we creating an environment of detachment? Or an environment of belonging. And as a Christian, are you allowing yourselves to be detached from Christian community? Or are you making the efforts to enter into what is part of your identity? That you're a part of the bride of Christ. Part of the body of Christ. And encouraging others to do the same. That takes time. That takes intentionality. That takes a willingness to understand yourself and what your gifts are and what the spirit is doing in your life and how that ministers in the various ways to others. It takes building friendships and being involved beyond just Sunday mornings, entering into koinonia, a meaningful shared life. Next, viewing church as a commodity allows me to have a me-first attitude. If I'm, only a, if I'm only a consumer of goods, then the church is here primarily to serve my needs. But a community involves making the needs of others my priority. A commodity is me first. A community says, what's going on around me? What's, what's for the good of the community? That's, what, that's one of the things you see in Acts 2, right? That they're saying, oh, I have... I have two shirts, and he has none, and so I can give mine. What's for the good of the community? They're, they're selling their stuff to meet the needs of someone. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time I've done that? Oh, I've got an extra of this. I've got some land I can sell. I can, for the good of the community. Whew. Not long ago, I met a, a young man from Syria, born and raised in Syria, and he's a, he's a believer. He's a Christian. So I was, I was just intrigued. I asked him, I was, like, I was like, what do you find as one of the most striking differences between your growing up in Syria and your time here? And, and, and I want to preface this and say, he didn't say this begrudgingly. He was happy to be here. If you know anything about what's going on in Syria, it's a nightmare. And he's happy to be here, and he's happy for the freedom he has here. But it was striking. He said, with, with really out without much thought, thought, he said, here, you're so individualistic. That, that it's always about what's for my own good first. He says it wasn't like that in Syria. In Syria, I grew up in community that it was community before the individual. So it might be striking to some of you, but the nature of the church, at least in that, that aspect, 
is to be more like what he experienced in Syria. That I wouldn't just be focused on my needs, but I'd be focused on the community's needs. Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So are we as a church creating an environment that we're mindful of what's going on and responsive to what's going on to the people around us? Are we using our time and our talent and our treasure to fill those needs? Are you engaging the church with a me-first attitude or with a community-first attitude? And then lastly, viewing the church as a commodity breeds fickleness. It's all about what have you done for me lately? Now, there's some of you that have real product loyalty. I'm a Chevy guy, you know. I'm a Ford guy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. But, I don't, you know, Chevy, Ford. I'm a John Deere guy. Yeah, I'm a Kubota guy. I don't, does anybody say that? I'm a Kubota guy? I don't know. <laughs> That's one of the goals of good business and good advertising, right? Product loyalty. But, but for the most part, we kind of say, how am I going to get the best product for the best price? And if that means shifting brands, so be it. But biblical Christian community calls us away from fickleness. See, that's the danger of looking at the church as a commodity. It calls us away from fickleness and toward faithfulness. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have with, against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The last couple of verses, Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. Could be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Then he says, make every effort, wow, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Detachment, detachment or belonging? Me first or community first? Fickleness or faithfulness? Is the church a commodity to be sold to be consumed, or is it to be koinonia, the deep sharing of our together, together heritage in Christ? What most reflects the one we follow? Where, we, where may we need to shift in our attitude and our activity? Where may you need to shift in your attitude or activity? to promote and foster and nurture koinonia here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel. So now I'm going to invite Craig up, and we'll celebrate what has made us a community, the sacrifice of Jesus.